Now John 4, 5 through 42. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as, also, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said, what you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, did Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Thank you, Sarah, for reading the longest scripture reading we've had in like three years. Um, Last Sunday in the message, CJ mentioned that he's going to be turning 42 in a little over a month. And for a moment, I pensively tilted my head up to the left, and I thought to myself, do I even remember 42? (laughs) All this to say, I am a wee bit older than CJ. I was born in January of 1972. Uh, But I am definitely a child of the 80s, which is partly why I love the TV show Stranger Things so much. Um, I've joked in the past about the decade of my evangelical blackout, which was the 90s, the decade when I only consumed Christian versions of secular things. I've been to a few weddings that CJ has DJed, and if it's a song from the 90s, which, by the way, it likely is if CJ is the DJ, it's very possible I have never heard the song. Which is sad, I know, but fortunately, the decade of my evangelical blackout left the 80s largely intact. And I do love me some 80s music. Just this past Monday, Kim had gone upstairs to start uh, start CJ's bath. That's terrible. Start George's (laughs) bath. Wow. Okay. I'm going to start that sentence over again. Just this past Monday, Kim had gone upstairs to start George's bath, and the Alexa device in George's nursery started randomly playing songs by Journey. And initially, we had no explanation, but I thought this was fantastic. Our current theory is that I have spoken the command, Alexa, play the station all 80s one too many times, and it somehow became an Alexa routine in George's room for some reason. Um, There are a few 80s classics that when they come on, uh, if I am the only one home, I will say, Alexa, set the volume at eight, like the song Rosanna by Toto. So indulge me for a moment and listen to a brief clip of this 80s masterpiece. Now she's gone and I have to say I cannot not turn that up. I mean, that song is amazing. Musically, it deserves a volume of eight or higher. The syncopated brass lines, the shots, the groove, it is just fantastic. Can I get an amen? Yeah, all right. My youngest daughter, Megan, because she is smart and high achieving, she also loves 80s music. And if either of us happen to be driving in our cars and Jesse's Girl by Rick Springfield comes on, we will text each other like this screenshot from a couple of years back, me, 102.9, Jesse's Girl right now, Meg's response, ayo! And here's the clip. Sing along. Jesse is a friend. Been a good friend of mine But lately something's changed It ain't hard to define Jesse's got himself a girl And I want to make her mine And she's watching with those eyes And she's loving And we'll stop there. We'll stop there. We'll stop there because lyrics. Um, but the energy and the harmonies, they're just so fun. 
And it's rare that these songs, you know, happen to come on while driving around town, but when they do, the volume is going up, and I'm not turning the car off until the song is done. I kind of feel that way about our gospel reading today, the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. It is just so good. It only appears in the lectionary readings once every three years, and it actually isn't the text where I want to spend all of my time this morning, but like a great song that you only hear once in a while, I cannot pass it up. I have to turn up the volume and leave the car running. Notice in that story that Jesus and the Samaritan woman are alone for this entire encounter. It is only at the very end of their conversation, when the disciples return with food from town, that they see her as she leaves her water jar and runs back into town. If John's account is accurate, they didn't witness or hear anything that was actually spoken between the two of them, which means that for John to have included this story in his gospel, Jesus almost certainly had to tell them the story of what happened. And based on the length and the nuance and the specific back-and-forth details of the conversation that John has recorded for us in the gospel reading, it seems to me Jesus may have told them this story more than once. Why? Verse 27 of our text gives us a clue. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. In the assumed social hierarchy of the day, a Jewish rabbi speaking with a Samaritan woman was several degrees removed from normal. Not only does Jesus break the rules by not upholding the long-standing hostility that existed between Jews and Samaritans, he does so with a woman. I think Jesus retells this story to his disciples because he knows this is a new story that they need to know. I'm reading a new book by James K.A. Smith called How to Inhabit Time, and I hesitate to even quote from it because I feel as though I'm only comprehending about 15% of what he writes. He's a brilliant Canadian philosopher and Christian thinker that CJ and I have both read from and quoted from before, and in his latest book, he argues that most of us live temporally dislocated or out of time. And not out of time like the time clock at a sporting event counting down to zero, but out of time in the sense that we live with an illusion that we are unaffected by time, that we're immune to history. If history or the passage of time is like the ocean, we mistakenly and arrogantly believe that we exist above it. Instead of accepting the truth that we are immersed in it and battered by it and shaped and directed with its power, he uses a word in his book that I quite like, no when. Not nowhere, but no when. And he talks about no when Christians living under this delusion that our doctrine, our practices, and our understanding of faith are unaffected by time, that we stand alone, that we are no when. As such, we are blind to our locatedness geographically and historically and temporally, and hence his accusation that we live out of time. Before returning to the story of the woman at the well, listen to this quote. Those who imagine they inhabit no when 
imagine themselves wholly governed by timeless principles, unchanging convictions, expressing an idealism that assumes they are wholly governed by eternal ideas untainted by history. They are oblivious to the deposits of history in their own unconscious. They have never considered the archaeological strata in their own souls. They live as if hatched rather than born, created ex nihilo rather than formed by a process. I love this quote. And I think this is why Jesus made sure that John and the disciples knew what happened in the conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus knows that our history and our passage through time is sticky. We pick up things along the way. And none of his 12 disciples were created ex nihilo, but rather they were formed by their passage through time immersed and battered and shaped by it. The when, when the disciples lived, had left deposits upon them, deposits that included societal norms that looked down on women as lesser than and included this long-standing animosity toward Samaritans. And Jesus, knowing all of this, makes sure to tell them this new story. If our passage through time is liturgical and shapes us, by telling this story to his disciples, Jesus is providing an intentional counter-liturgy to help shape them in a new way. By letting them in on this conversation with the woman at the well, Jesus is helping his disciples wrestle with and address the histories that they carry. And by the way, this is why we do fifth Sundays the way we do, dedicating them to listen and learn and grow in our understanding and approach and participation in racial justice and equity and healing, because history is sticky, and we live in a particular when, and we are not no when. Our when has shaped us, and we want to grow in our understanding of how Jesus wants to respond to our particular when. But the passage through time wasn't only sticky for the disciples. It wasn't only upon their lives that history had made her deposits. It was also upon the Samaritan woman. Last Sunday, CJ spoke about the story of Nicodemus, the one and only passage in all of Scripture that speaks of being born again. In the book, by James K.A. Smith, How to Inhabit Time, the author pauses on this story of Nicodemus, and he says something that I want to relate back to the story of the woman at the well and the history that she carried with her into her encounter with Jesus. Smith writes that part of what makes the Christian idea of being born again so miraculous is that this new birth is not a blank slate or a reset button. It doesn't happen in a sort of no-when way, irrespective of time and history and how those things have shaped us. Jesus doesn't just happen where we are, he happens when we are. And Nicodemus, he can't initially understand this. The only born again he can imagine is by rewinding the clock, which is why he says, can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? But Jesus is not interested in reset buttons. If all that Nicodemus has lived through was simply erased by grace, then the I of Nicodemus, the unique storied person of Nicodemus, is not redeemed, he is lost. What Jesus is offering to Nicodemus isn't a restart through his mother's womb, 
Quoting James K. A. Smith, the miracle that puzzled Nicodemus that should astound us is that the God of grace can redeem even me. This historical creation can begin again with this history that lives in me, that is me. It's the body with scars that is resurrected. It's the me with a history that is redeemed, forgiven, graced, and liberated. When I read that last phrase, it's the me with a history that is redeemed, forgiven, graced, and liberated, I immediately thought of the woman at the well in our text this morning. History had left some deposits upon her life. And just as Jesus helped the disciples reckon with the histories that they carried, He did the same with her. Jesus didn't simply encounter her where she was at this well outside of Sychar in Samaria. He encountered her when she was. We are going to transition shortly to the story of the Israelites wandering through the desert that Brian and Tracy read for us earlier where they have fallen into this trap of nostalgia, a selective, romanticized, and carefully curated memory. But before we make that transition, there's a curious overlap of experience between the Samaritan woman at the well and the Israelites wandering through the desert. At the center of their Venn diagram is a backward glance. And for Israel, this backward glance is a romanticized nostalgia. But for the woman at the well, this backward glance is nostalgia in negative. It is shame and regret. And by the way, there is an absolutely stunning rendering of this story in episode 8, season 1 of the TV series, The Chosen. And I recommend you look it up. Google it. You will find it. If you grew up in church, you know this story. While most women fetch water in the cool of the morning, she arrives at the well at noon, the hottest time of day. Why? Shame. One of the things I love about the Chosen's imagining of this story is that it recognizes that her story was certainly nuanced and complicated. But in a world where women were viewed as less than man, where a woman's testimony was considered untrustworthy or ineligible in court, it didn't matter if her story was nuanced or messy. To her neighbors and to the other women in town and certainly to all of the men, she was guilty, irredeemably so. And this is why she doesn't go to the well with the other women. When she looks at herself, she only sees something hideous, something to regret. Shame can't imagine a future for our past, but grace can't imagine a future without it. That is remarkable news. In the story of Nicodemus, who couldn't understand how he could be born again without starting over from the beginning, if all that we've learned and experienced and lived through in life is simply overwhelmed and made null by grace, then salvation would be an obliteration rather than redemption. But Jesus doesn't operate in this no-when kind of way, divorced from time and history, somehow above it. It's the me with a history that is redeemed, 
forgiven, graced, and liberated. I don't know exactly what her interactions looked like when she went back into town, but I have to believe that there was something about how Jesus welcomed and loved her whole self, her whole story, including her painful experience of exclusion and shame. I have to believe that had something to do with the remarkable impact that she had when she went back into town. The way that Grace met her when she was unwelcomed and pushed to the margins, having to go to the well at midday, that transformed her into a radical welcoming force of inclusion for others on the margins. Perhaps that's how it is for all of us. It isn't just my great love of 80s music that I carry with me and God partners with, but God also partners with and redeems the 10-year-old me who was a devout, badge-earning, scripture-memorizing Calvinist Cadet Corps member, and the 17-year-old me who carried his large gray study Bible to high school and who was fairly good at following the rules and exceptionally good at calling others out when they didn't follow the rules, especially my older sister. She was such a sinner. And God partners with the 25-year-old me who was a first-time pastor who knew all of the answers. And the 30-year-old me, worship leader, Chris Tomlin wannabe, who spent more than a few years emphasizing style over substance and who learned a thing or two about the dangers of emphasizing charisma over character. And the 35-year-old me, who for the first time in his adult life suddenly had a gay friend, and by God's grace, I was in a humble enough space to listen and learn and entertain the possibility that sexuality might be more complicated than I once thought it was. And it is. And God partners with the 44-year-old me, who went through a separation and a divorce, and the shame and embarrassment that accompanied that as a pastor with a family that fell apart. And God partners with the 46-year-old me, who two years later adamantly and arrogantly believed the dissolution of my marriage had nothing to do with me. And God partners with the 47-year-old me, who came to realize that the 46-year-old me was an idiot. (laughs) Grace hasn't undone any of that, but grace has redeemed it and partnered with it and turned me into something that I'm trusting by God's grace that somebody needs. Because because grace didn't obliterate me, but instead redeemed the me with a history, there is insight and empathy and grace and perhaps even a tiny bit of wisdom that I carry into the world that the world needs. In the past two months, I have had coffee with three different sets of parents of adult LGBTQ children who have gone through the pain of leaving faith communities that couldn't welcome their kids. Grace can't undo the pain of that story. Grace isn't a time machine with a reset button. But perhaps similar to the woman at the well, Grace is at work behind the scenes partnering with that pain and creating a new, passionate, welcoming presence within these parents that someone else desperately needs. But now moving on briefly to uh, our text in Exodus. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? As we've already mentioned, the backward glance of the woman at the well caused a nostalgia in negative 
this shame and regret. But the backward glance of the Israelites caused the good old-fashioned straightforward kind of nostalgia, the one formed as much by what is forgotten as it is formed by what is remembered. And this type of nostalgia, by the way, is always decontextualized. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says, do not say, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. We could spend more time on this, but I don't want to, and I'm preaching, so I get to decide. So let's just agree that it's bad and we shouldn't do it, and I want to offer a different thought, one that is likely less preached from on this story of Israel's desert wanderings, 40 years of effectively getting nowhere. Those of you who happen to be students of history or students of geography might know that as the crow flies, this wilderness journey should have been much, much, much shorter. Fun fact, in the Six-Day War of 1967, the Egyptian army stationed on Israel's border in the Sinai received orders to retreat, and they were able to make it back to the Suez Canal in Egypt on foot within a week, within seven days. Obviously, traveling with 600,000 people out of Egypt, along with livestock and possessions and children George's age, who are not always 100% compliant, spoiler alert for any of you who aren't parents, clearly this would take much longer. Certainly it would take months, probably even longer than that. But 40 years? Is it possible that this time frame was poetically expanded in the retelling because 40 is an important symbolic number within Jewish storytelling, a number representing a season of testing or trial. It's possible. After all, Moses lived with Pharaoh in Egypt for 40 years and then was for 40, spent 40 years in Midian before God selected him to go back to Egypt and lead his people out of slavery. 40 years then in the desert would just make it all very symmetrical. Or is it possible that God needed to spend a lot of time with a stubborn and unpredictable lot of 600,000 former slaves who had never in their lives been self-governing or self-organizing, and before they move into Canaan, God wanted to form them into an exemplary nation that all nations would look to? Is it reasonable that this task of organizing and governing may not have taken months or years, but possibly decades, that's possible too. If you want the definitive answer, just travel back in time to when I was 25 years old and ask me, and I would tell you. Um, but however long it was, let's just agree that it was a long time, and they didn't get very far. When I first read the lectionary texts for today, my plan was mostly to speak just on this text and say something like this. Sometimes we need a season where we don't get anywhere. When we make no progress. In a sense, that's what Sabbaths are supposed to be. We Westerners are so goal-oriented. In the workplace, we've got to meet or exceed this year's business plan. At home, we've got to finish the wainscoting in the bathroom. And at school, we've got to boost our grades with the next paper or get ready for the next midterm. 
This is all well and good, but the time we spend immersed in incessant Western productivity shapes us. It is liturgical. Or to use language from today's message, it is sticky, and it has left deposits on us. And we seem to have arrived at a place where we can no longer even imagine doing anything that won't get us something or somewhere, which makes doing anything soulful or restorative or intentionally slow increasingly difficult. There is a Jewish expression that says, more than Israel has kept Shabbat, the Hebrew word for Sabbath, Shabbat has kept Israel. And I think the meaning is clear, but just in case you missed it, more than us keeping Sabbath, rest, peace, and space, it is these things that keep us. They hold us together, not the reverse. We fall apart without them. Perhaps being stuck for a season and not getting anywhere is actually a gift, an unproductive counter-liturgy that is desperately needed. It reminds us of the somewhat overused but very true saying that we are human beings and not human doings. My guess is that by virtue of you living here in North Carolina, you have likely been to the Outer Banks before. They are beautiful. And one of the unique features of the Outer Banks is, of course, the, the barrier islands, these long, narrow strips of land that para run parallel to the coast that protect the mainland from storm surge and from big waves by absorbing all of that energy. And many of the houses on the Outer Banks have these beautiful railed rooftop platforms that you can climb up to and use as a viewing deck. And if the weather is good, you can see for miles in any direction. Has, does anyone, has anyone experienced this? You've been to a rooftop house in the Outer Banks? If the, yeah, if the weather is lovely, you can see for miles. And the difference between the ocean on the outside of the barrier island and the ocean on the inside of the barrier island is remarkable. On the one side, the wind can be violently crashing against the shore, and on the other side, someone can be lying on a paddleboard, floating gently in the slow rise and fall of the currents. If history or the passage of time is like the ocean, and we are immersed in it, battered by it, shaped and directed by it. So much of life is spent on the outside of the barrier island. And we need to find ways, to make ways, counter-liturgical ways, to spend some time on the other side. We need those deposits upon our lives as well. Because more than us keeping Sabbath, rest, peace, space, it is these things that keep us. So that's homework piece number one for you. Homework piece number two is more of a thought experiment. I want you to ask yourself, what is your when? What are your unique deposits of history that time has left in you, in your family story, in your faith story, 
if Jesus meets us when we are, like he did with the disciples and with the woman at the well, when he meets you when you are, what unique gift does that create for the world? And how have you used that gift? Or how might you use that gift? Consider asking these questions to each other at home or with a friend or in a small group. Let's pray together. Holy God, forgive us for foolishly believing that our faith exists out of time, untouched by the when that we find ourselves in. Help us be wiser than that. Help us to engage the counter-liturgy of being unproductive, of not getting anywhere. Spirit of God, thank you for redeeming and taking up our whole stories into your story, even the hard stuff, the painful stuff, our mistakes. For these things, partnered with your grace, are the gift the world needs. Amen.